Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Uh, thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I'm going to continue my series on the uh, Deficits of Trust ebook that I've published. And what I've been doing over the last uh, little while is reading out each section or, uh, well, a collection of sections in about half hour or 35 minute chunks and uh, posting those as YouTube videos and also as podcasts. So people, if they want to listen along rather than uh, read the book, then that's fine. Uh, they can do so. So it's sort of like a, an audio book version of uh, Deficits of Trust. So today it's part two, which is called What Really Happened. And I'm going to go through sections 11 through 14, starting with uh, Bad Aim at Onslow, Belmont. Just after 10 a.m. on April 19th, 2020, with the Nova Scotia mass shooting killer still on the loose, having left Portapic 12 hours earlier and having committed further killings in the Wentworth area, two RCMP officers erroneously fired multiple shots at a fellow officer and a civilian emergency responder at the fire hall in Onslow. Some details from earlier foundational documents are relevant to the fire hall shootings. First, Corporal Peterson had stated over the radio that the killer was wearing a reflective vest when they passed each other driving. Secondly, there was a brief, potentially dangerous gathering of police vehicles on Highway 4 near the Fisher residence, where one set of officers in a borrowed police vehicle did not have all of their systems active, and the vehicle driven by Constable Brown and Constable Melanson, who shot at the fire hall and almost shot at the officers in the borrowed vehicle, was noted not to have GPS capabilities. Constable Brown and Constable Melanson had indicated in statements that they shot at the Onslow Belmont Fire Hall because they saw someone standing in front of the building wearing a reflective vest. The GPS issue is relevant because they are, there are conflicting accounts as to where the officers initially stopped and from what location they began shooting. In addition to being reviewed at the MCC, such incidents draw investigations by the Serious Incident Response Team, CERT which is designed to review police shootings to see whether charges may be warranted against an officer. CERT is civilian-led and independent from the police or government. CERT was led at the time by retired Nova Scotia Supreme Court Justice Felix Cacchione and has a team of investigators made up of former and current police officers. CERT was established in 2010, initially under the direction of former Crown Prosecutor Ron McDonald, KC. It has generally been seen as a helpful, though not perfect, addition to the Nova Scotia justice system, providing a public forum for investigations into allegations of improper police behavior. Reports are found on the CERT website for all investigations undertaken. There are two incidents from the Nova Scotia mass shooting that are subject to CERT reports. This shooting at Onslow Belmont and the fatal shooting of the killer at the Big Stop in Enfield. In both cases, there seem to be significant contradictions which should have been clarified during the Mass Casualty Commission hearings. The CERT report states that two officers drove up to the Onslow Belmont Fire Hall in an unmarked Nissan Altima, saw a person they thought was Gabriel Wartman standing next to a marked RCMP car while wearing a high visibility orange and yellow vest yelled to him to show his hands, and then shot when the person instead ducked behind the police car. One of the officers also happened to be one of the officers who interviewed Wartman's partner, Lisa Banfield, that morning. 
That seems like a significant coincidence given the dozens of officers involved in the situation. The CERT report says that Ms. Banfield told police that morning that Wartman was wearing an orange vest and had a replica RCMP vehicle. The vest part was at least slightly misleading as Ms. Banfield had actually observed Wartman in an orange plaid shirt, not a reflective vest, when she last saw him. Constable Brown was also familiar with the area and so, the CERT report states, he went out on patrol seemingly outside the somewhat coordinated situational response the RCMP was developing, looking for the killer. This fact alone seems significant and unusual. The two officers driving in the unmarked Nissan would have heard that three other people had been found dead that morning, killed by the same individual as had killed at least five people the night before. So, the officers may reasonably have concluded that he was in the area and extremely dangerous. When the officers arrived at the fire hall, they were unable to get through on the radio to anyone due to the high volume of traffic on the police frequency. There was cell service in the area, but no mention is made in the report as to whether the officers tried to reach anyone that way. Instead, it appears from the report that they yelled from a distance at the suspected killer, shot at his location, and then soon left without talking to anyone inside or confirming the status of the person they misidentified as the suspect. There were others inside the fire hall who almost got shot as well, as it was being used as a comfort center for those from Portapique who needed to vacate the community. The CERT report notes, however, that it was not well known among officers that the fire hall was being so used. So, these officers may not have been alerted to the possibility that other officers, firefighters, or EMTs might legitimately be on the scene. From one perspective, the one adopted by CERT, it can seem as though there was just a terrible but understandable mistake that fortunately did not result in anyone being hit by a bullet. Credible witnesses have since spoken out, however, raising questions about the CERT report conclusions. Several witnesses were close enough, either in neighboring houses or driving by in a noiseless Toyota Prius at the same time, to be able to say the officers did not, in fact, yell out to the suspect, but instead got out of their car and started shooting almost immediately. Questions have been raised by a local firefighter about sight lines and whether, in fact, a vehicle approaching the fire hall could have seen a police car parked there from the distance claimed. I was shown this sight line in person and it seems highly unlikely that anyone would have been able to see someone in front of the fire hall, decide they were suspicious and only then decide to stop where the officers did. Driving from the west there is a slight rise in the road and you come upon the fire hall somewhat suddenly. From where the officers were parked it would also be very difficult to make out individual characteristics on a person standing in front of the fire hall doors. The suggestion from this is that perhaps the officers were told that Wartman was at the fire hall, and so they stopped short of the building and went in shooting. The report also omit, omits to mention or try to justify why the officers then just left the scene without talking to anyone inside. If they realized their mistake, why not go check on the victims? If they did not, why not pursue the suspected killer? CERT does not say. Credible eyewitnesses re, re, eyewitness reports describe a situation where there was either a sudden, panicked, or at least not cool-headed reaction to someone seeing someone who might be the killer, or else one where the officers were deliberately fooled into thinking it was Wartman standing outside the fire hall. If it was the former, these officers are in the wrong line of work, and the CERT report is flawed. 
if it is the latter, then there is a potentially, potentially much more to uncover about who gave the officers that information. The MCC's presentation of the fire hall shootings was led by MCC lawyer Roger Burrow. He discussed the mistaken shots by two RCMP officers at a fellow officer and an EMO coordinator who the officers claimed to have thought was the killer. Though you would not know this from hearing the commission's presentation, there are significant discrepancies in the accounts of the officers as compared to other witnesses, including the suggestion that a warning was shouted to the mistaken targets. It was a very dangerous situation. There was also a witness panel from the fire hall which featured Chief Greg Muse, Deputy Chief Darrell Curry, and Richard Ellison. The panel of witnesses revealed the terror felt by those inside the fire hall who, quite reasonably, thought the killer was firing at them and the mental health struggles the memories have engendered. They also discussed how nobody told them things were safe once the misunderstanding was established. Instead, they had to wait nearly an hour to learn they were not in mortal danger. Some of those inside the fire hall sent texts and made calls to loved ones that they thought would be their final words. In addition to the shots themselves, the actions of the officers after they realized their mistake are curious and had the effect of compounding the feelings of dread felt by those inside. The officers circled the building and pounded on an exterior door, which terrified those inside even further. Did they think Constable Gagnon was being held hostage? Why move so slowly when you know the killer is still on the loose and likely not far away? Constables Terry Brown and Dave Melanson testified together as a witness panel about the shooting. The union representing RCMP officers had objected to any of these officers testifying, suggested, suggesting that it would be too traumatic for them to do so. As expected, there was little evidence of any such trauma in the officers when they actually spoke. They both answered all questions asked of them without difficulty or hesitation. The content of those answers, however, was less than satisfactory. In their testimony, the officers indicated that Constable Brown shouted some commands to the person they suspected to be the killer and then started shooting after the person ducked and ran toward the fire hall door. The officers further testified that when Constable Gagnon radioed back to them that they were shooting at him and not a proper suspect, that they stopped, assessed the situation to ensure everyone, everybody was uninjured, checked around the building, and then left the area to continue their pursuit of the killer. They testified that Constable Brown called Staff Sergeant Carroll immediately afterwards and was told to continue on, and that any consequences of the fire hall shooting could be addressed after the active shooter situation was resolved. Much of this account conflicts with available evidence from the other witnesses, as well as what an objective observer may consider reasonable under the admittedly unusual circumstances. Most significantly is the contention that commands or anything were yelled toward the potential suspects prior to shots being fired. All other witnesses, including Constable Gagnon, David Westlake, Jerome Bro, and occupants of neighboring houses, say that no warnings or commands were shouted prior to the shooting. In fact, Constable Melanson could not really recall Constable Brown yelling anything either. When pressed, he said he thought he heard something, but since he was trying to get through to others on the radio, his focus was elsewhere. This part of the testimony helps illustrate why it can be important for witnesses to be questioned individually rather than as a panel. Without Constable Brown sitting next to him, one wonders what Constable Melanson's fulsome answers may have been. It is worth noting that Constable Melanson only fired one shot. 
In his cross-examination, Patterson Law lawyer Michael Scott asked a crucial question in a very incisive manner. He asked the officers whether, now that they understand what was really happening, whether they thought it was strange that David Westlake, who was wearing the reflective vest and was suspected by Brown and Melanson to be the killer, ducked and ran while speaking to an RCMP officer and while receiving instructions from other RCMP officers. Surely, if he were just an EMO official, he would have complied with RCMP instructions. The witnesses did not have a real answer to that question. For those unfamiliar with cross-examination in real life, as opposed to television courtrooms, this is about as good as you can expect to get from the perspective of the lawyer asking the questions. Uh, you cannot expect that witnesses will break down on the stand and admit that anything they have said is untrue. They almost always stick to their story, even in the face of obvious contradictions. As the lawyer, the best you can achieve is for the witnesses' answers to clearly lack credibility, as was the case with these two. The sheer distance between the officers and the suspect and the suspect created difficulties that the witnesses were not able to adequately address. They said they were 100% sure the suspect was the active shooter based on seeing the RCMP police cruiser, the reflective vest, and his actions in ducking and after receiving commands. Yet, they could not see that there was also a person inside the cruiser. They could not see the call sign on the back of the cruiser so as to identify whether it was the replica. They could not see whether the person was holding a gun and could not see the person's face. Fortunately, the distance coupled with the perhaps excited state of the officers meant they also could not accurately hit their intended target. Another point raised by Constable Brown, which he seemed to think helped his credibility, but I suspect many will find does the opposite, was his intense and singular focus. He described an auditory exclusion in the sense that he could not even hear the gunshot next to him from his partner, and also his visual focus, which led him to see only the individual he was targeting and not any other vehicles, orange cones, or anything else within his field of vision. There were other notable moments in the testimony. I noticed that Constable Melanson referred to Miss Banfield at one point as Lisa, and then later referred to Wartman by his first name as well. In my experience, police officers almost exclusively use last names when testifying or speaking about any matter in which they are involved. That may not mean anything, but it struck me as unusual. The officers were in an unmarked car, which they rightly, perhaps, felt gave them an advantage over others chasing the killer, who may have only been watching out for marked police cruisers. This may ha also have given them the sense, however, that they were the only ones who might succeed in catching Wartman. They seem to have had an over-eager approach, which led to the mistakes they made. They themselves were not in any danger at the distance from which they took their shots, and they said they had no awareness that there may have been anyone in the fire hall, so it would not seem unreasonable for them to have approached more closely to get a better assessment of the situation before shooting. All of this made me wonder whether someone had provided them with information in advance, telling them that a person standing next to a police car wearing a reflective vest outside the fire hall and that they thus made the decision to engage with lethal force before stopping their car. The possibility exists that the perpetrator had access to the radio communications from the police at various times during his killing spree. Wartman had purchased a Motorola police radio in 2006, and it is unclear whether it may have been functional. 
If it was, it may have been helpful to him in evading capture as police were forced to use unencrypted radio channels overnight and into the morning of April 19, 2020. The radio question may be relevant to the Onslow Belmont Fire Hall shooting incident. People had questioned whether Wartman may have deliberately misled the police over the radio and somehow caused the shooting. He had driven his mock cruiser past the fire hall just 10 minutes prior to Constables Melanson and Brown's arrival, so there was a hypothesis that perhaps he had falsely radioed that the killer was parked at the fire hall. No such evidence has emerged identified in, in reviewing the radio communications that have been made available. The other possibility I've considered is whether Constables Brown or Melanson may have received a tip on their personal phones. Given the distance from the fire hall where they originally stopped and the distance from which they fired their shots, coupled with the lack of any warning being shouted, supports a conclusion that the officers felt very certain that they had the killer in their sights. So, either they are protecting someone who had provided them with the incorrect information, or else they acted in a completely reckless fashion. It appears that nobody, including the CERT or MCC investigators, has requested the officer's personal phone records. EMO tries to help. At about 10.20 a.m., Glenn Mason, the RCMP's emergency management civilian employee, became the go-between for EMO officials trying to reach an RCMP officer to see if they wanted help to issue a public alert. Although emergency management was part of Inspector Dustine Rodier's file, she declined to take calls from both Mr. Mason and EMO manager Michael Bennett. Inspector Rodier said that was because she was on a phone line with Superintendent Darren Campbell and Chief Superintendent Chris Leather, who were all occupied monitoring the ongoing pursuit of the suspect. At 11.17 a.m., Risk Manager Staff Sergeant Steve Ettinger managed to get Inspector Rodier's attention to authorize the sending of an alert, but EMO required that the message be drafted by the RCMP. In fact, within moments of hearing the suggestion, Staff Sergeant Ettinger voiced on the call what the message could say in simple, accurate terms. He said to Inspector Rodier, out to everybody, like media, like one of those emergency alerts, well, to stay inside and watch this guy and stay away from him. It was a real-time demonstration of how quickly an effective message can be drafted without unnecessary bureaucratic constraints. By the time these conversations were taking place, however, the situation was ending. No real progress seems to have taken place on the alert. Inspector Rodier shouted across the room to Staff Sergeant Ettinger to have strategic communications handle the messaging, but that instruction appears to have got lost in the shuffle between Staff Sergeant Ettinger, Mr. Mason, and Mr. Bennett. By 11.25 a.m. it became a moot point when the 13-hour manhunt ended with Wartman being killed. Unlike most other witnesses from whom we have heard, Inspector Rodier had been following the events of the Mass Casualty Commission very closely. She was very well prepared with a clear sense of what narrative she wished to present. She took many questions and gave lengthy answers in defense of the RCMP response to these events and to their policies and approaches. To all things policing. She was able to reference the testimony of multiple other witnesses and the foundational documents. On the issue of the alert ready system, she says she did not know what it was in April 2020. 
It seems, however, that she may have known more than she was prepared to admit. Evidence from Glenn Mason and others suggests there were presentations to the RCMP from EMO in 2015, 2016, 2019, and 2020. There is no proof that she attended any of these presentations, but certainly one would expect the development of such a potentially important tool to at least occasionally make it on the radar of a communications superintendent. It is in her interests and the interests of the RCMP more broadly to downplay Alert Ready. And so, unless it can be proven that she knew something, I expect Inspector Rodier will continue to deny it. There was no cross-examination of Inspector Rodier until after 5 p.m. on the day she testified at the MCC, which was a win of sorts for her. I was told by members of the media during the Desmond inquiry that unless something happened before 3 p.m., it was unlikely to make the news, as reporters had late afternoon filing deadlines. Therefore, it was likely that no, no evening news reports were going to cover the more difficult portions of her testimony. I suspect Inspector Rodier knew this and that this in part explained her longer answers in her direct examination with the MCC lawyer. Those media members who had to drop off to meet their deadlines missed some very good cross-examination. Inspector Rodier had stated, unchallenged by the MCC lawyer uh, during her, her direct testimony, that one of the risks of the Alert Ready system was a flood of nuisance calls from the public and claimed that 29% of attempted 911 calls were missed after an alert was issued soon after the mass casualty. Josh Bryson, representing the Bond family, very effectively showed that this 29% figure was completely unreliable, that all calls most likely had appropriately diverted to other call takers around the province, and that the percentage of calls missed could very well have been, and likely was, zero. Truro kept in the dark. Truro Police Chief Dave McNeil has been critical of the RCMP's response, their lack of information sharing with Truro Police during the mass shooting, and their efforts after the fact to keep important information from being made public. The evidence from Chief McNeil showed that the RCMP did not provide timely or accurate information to the Truro Police on what was happening in Portapic and other parts of Colchester County. The Truro police were getting information in pieces from being at the hospital where victims were being taken by seeing RCMP vehicles speeding through town and in the morning via social media posts. There was vigorous cross-examination of Chief McNeil from the lawyer for the National Police Federation. This of course carried some irony given the NPF's repeatedly stated position that police officers should not be subjected to any questions, let alone a thorough cross-examination. At midnight, Erica Lockhart, Lockhart, a nurse at the Colchester Regional Hospital in Truro, where Andrew McDonald had been taken, called Candace Chernobyl at the Truro Police Service Dispatch Center to say that an ambulance driver had told her to expect more victims and that the hospital was under lockdown. That was the first the Truro Police knew about Portapec. The RCMP had not contacted the Truro Police directly. There was a series of miscommunications and mixed messages between the RCMP and the Truro Police Service such that the killer was able to slowly drive right through the center of Truro without being noticed or confronted by the Truro Police. 
As the killer wasn't stopped in Truro, he continued on to Shubenacadie, where he shot and injured Constable Chad Morrison and killed Constable Heidi Stevenson, Joey Weber, and Gina Goulet. On April 18, 2020, the Truro Police Service was operating with just three officers on duty with Sergeant Richard Hickox in command. Sergeant Hickox was clearly annoyed at not being kept in the loop by the RCMP. He explained to Mass Casualty Commission investigators that had he known the severity of the situation in Portapec, he could have had 10 additional officers to respond, all with carbines and body armor. Chief McNeil was at home. Sometime during this period, Deputy Chief Robert Hearn texted Chief McNeil to say something was happening in Portapec and it was on social media. That's the first Chief McNeil had learned of it. RCMP Risk Manager Staff Sergeant Briars called the Truro Dispatch and the call was forwarded to Corporal Ed Cormier. Staff Sergeant Briars told Corporal Cormier everything he knew about the fake police car and added that the RCMP believed there were more than seven people dead. Staff Sergeant Briars suggested that the lockdown at the hospital be continued and that Truro cops should wear their hard body armor. After he hung up, Staff Sergeant Briars emailed Corporal Cormier a photo of the fake police car. At 8.51 a.m., Corporal Cormier radioed for Constables Whidden and Reeves to meet him at the hospital. Constable Taylor was already there. Corporal Cormier briefed the officers on all the updated information and then forwarded a photo of the fake car to Deputy Chief Hearn. That is, by 9 a.m., the entire active Truro Police Force knew that the killer was driving a fake police car and knew that he may not be in Portapec. At 9.50 a.m., Chief McNeil emailed Chief Superintendent Leather CCing Assistant Commissioner Lee Bergerman, offering to help. At 10 a.m., Chief McNeil heard back from Chief Superintendent Leather, who told him that the RCMP had Wartman pinned down in Wentworth. Chief Superintendent Leather appears to have been referring to the emergency response team's movement at the Fisher residence in Glenholm. At 10.11 a.m., Corporal Cormier was at the hospital, but he soon left to head to the police station, where he arrived at about 10.15 a.m. Unknown to him, Wartman traveled on Esplanade Street, a block from the police station, just two minutes later. In another close call intro, at 10.11 a.m., Constable Jason Reeves was patrolling near Victoria Park. He then headed north on Highway 2, which was the killer's imminent path. But at 10.16 a.m., Constable Reeves turned left on McClure's Mill Road to head to the hospital, missing Wartman by about three minutes. At 10.21.53 a.m., after the killer had driven through Truro, Brittany Alter at the OCC called Brittany Steves at Truro Dispatch to inform her of the Plains Road murders and to suggest that the killer may be heading to Truro. We now know that Wartman drove the fake police car through the main streets of Bible Hill and Truro from 10.11 a.m., to 10:20 a.m. His vehicle was captured on video in eight different locations. Among the questions asked by Ms. Njawin was a set of questions about Truro police failing to lock down the town, which was a frantic, vague request from the RCMP when it was made. There were other RCMP jurisdictions which were not blocked off in any way between Portapec and Truro. Chief McNeil stated that there had to be a lot of catastrophic failures. For the killer to get from Portapic to Truro. Chief McNeil, by his basic honesty and forthright statements throughout this ordeal, has stood out as a voice of reason in contrast to the management class of the RCMP. 
Among other things, he refused to sign off on the originally planned review as requested by the Provincial Minister of Justice. This was a process that the RCMP supported, but Chief McNeil felt a more fulsome inquiry was needed and that that was what the public demanded and deserved. He also forthrightly refused to agree to an RCMP PR campaign to, of sorts to undermine the efficacy of Alert Ready and refused to agree to the RCMP's request to resist disclosing the 2011 Criminal Intelligence Bulletin on Wartman once it was discovered. Tragic Misunderstanding and Deadly Exchanges at Shuby The Shubenacadie Foundational Document Presentation laid out two confrontations the killer had with two individual RCMP officers, including the fatal encounter with Heidi Stevenson. Constable Chad Morrison was able to drive away from the killer despite being shot. Constable Stevenson was rammed head-on by the killer in his mock police cruiser, and though he was able to fire 14 or 15, she was able to fire 14 or 15 shots at him, she was killed in the firefight. The MCC stated that they have concluded that the push bar on the killer's mock police cruiser was not an advantage in the head-on collision, and thus, which does not seem reasonable on its face. Constable Stevenson may have been disoriented by the collision and thus been at a major disadvantage during the subsequent firefight. There was a tragic, though not unreasonable, misunderstanding involved in Corporal Morrison's shooting. He saw a police car and asked over the radio who was approaching. Constable Stevenson was, in fact, approaching, but from the opposite direction and radioed back that it was her. That unfortunate misunderstanding gave Wartman an extra second or two to catch Constable Morrison by surprise and get a few shots away. Reacting quickly once he figured out it was Wartman, Constable Morrison was able to escape and get himself to the nearest EHS depot for medical treatment. Had Constable Stevenson arrived either seconds earlier or later, things would have unfolded much differently. Earlier that morning, Constable Stevenson had suggested that an alert go out to the public about the active shooter situation. Had her advice been heeded, Joey Weber would likely still be alive. He was out running some errands and happened upon the scene of the two officers. Being a good Samaritan, he stopped to offer his help and was also killed. We did not hear much about Mr. Weber in the presentation uh, and his family, like other families, was not given a chance to tell more of his story as the proceedings unfolded. After the deaths of Constable Stevenson and Joey Weber came the death of Wartman's final victim, fellow denturist Gina Goulet, who lived on Highway 224 south of Shubenacadie. Miss Goulet knew the killer through their common profession. News reports also suggest Miss Goulet may have embarrassed Wartman with a comment at a denturist conference a few years prior to his killing spree. He had apparently pointed out her cottage on the drive the day previously with Miss Banfield and had previous and she had previously rejected an offer from him to work for him in his Dartmouth operation. The circumstances suggest, however, that he was not targeting her as a specific victim over any grievance, but rather took an opportunity to hide from the pursuing police officers switch vehicles and change clothing in order to stay disguised. He had originally driven past her home, then did a U-turn and went back and up her driveway. Most likely he knew the police were on his heels and he needed a temporary hiding place, a new look, 
or perhaps both. After he killed Miss Goulet, the perpetrator changed out of his RCMP uniform and switched from Joey Weber's Ford Escape to her vehicle, which was a Mazda 3. From Miss Goulet's home, Wartman seemed to be trying to make his way to Halifax. He had a problem, however, which was that Miss Goulet's car was nearly out of gas when he stole it. He made the risky but necessary decision to gas up. All right, that's uh, it for today. Those are uh, sections 11 through 14 of part two of Deficits of Trust. I'll uh, continue on. Uh, the next part uh, covers the final moments of the killer's life at the big stop and uh, some of the immediate uh, moments after that. So I look forward to uh, joining you at that time. So thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, thanks for watching and we'll see you next time.